Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. What sort of calendar governs your life? There's the shopping calendar that sees new merchandise set out just hours after the end of the previous shopping season frenzy, governs all of our lives. There's the parenting and grandparenting calendar that has us chauffeuring little ones around and until they're not so little and we're not so needed. There's the sports calendar that breaks Toronto's heart with astonishing regularity. Households have calendars of birthdays and anniversaries. My wife, Jaylin, had our anniversary date inscribed inside my wedding ring so that when I forgot, there was no excuse. I haven't forgotten yet. Well, the church has its own calendar, different from these others. And according to the church's calendar, this is the last Sunday of the year. Next week is the first Sunday of Advent, the first of a new year. This Sunday ends a stretch of what we call ordinary time in church. I love that because most of our lives is pretty ordinary. Next week begins the extraordinary, the countdown to Christmas, then Epiphany, then Lent, then Easter, and finally Pentecost, a flurry of holiness. Soon a good army of folks will come out and decorate this great church, and it'll look even more magnificent than it always does. So happy last Sunday of the year. Church calendar is weird, y'all. This last Sunday of ordinary time is not so ordinary. We call it Christ the King Sunday, or in some settings, the Sunday of doom. I couldn't resist using that for my sermon title. The idea is that the end of the year At the end of our lives, we're judged by Jesus Christ alone and none other. This is good news. The only one with the authority to judge our lives is altogether mercy, altogether kindness. I think most people, when they think about things like heaven and hell, ultimate judgment, They figure, well, one day good people will go to a good place, and bad people, well. Let me be as clear as I can here. That is not true. That is a lie. At the end of all things, we are judged not on whether we're good or bad people. Here's how we're judged. God looks at His beautiful Son and judges us based on His Son's beauty. And that's great news. (laughs) Many of us live our lives with a kind of negative feedback loop. I wish I were more successful. I wish I were more beautiful. I wish I weren't disappointing my parents. I wish I were wealthier. This is not a rational system of judgment, but it runs in our ears, fed by consumerism. God looks at us and sees not our bank account, or our physical beauty, or even how religious we are. God looks at us and sees Jesus, and so loves us because of Him. 
We call it grace. That's why the church exists. It's really good news. But that's not the only sort of judgment God renders. There's another sort. God doesn't just judge individual, solo, personal lives. God also judges the nations, history, at a macro level, not just a micro level. Vladimir Putin does not get one day to say, I know I started a war of convenience, but I'm sorry, I got forgiveness, it's all good now, right? Christ the King Sunday shows us that God will judge nations and make everything right, and that'll be painful for some or all of us. God remembers every act of harm and will make them right one day. In North America, we're only slowly starting to realize what 500 years of colonialism and racism has done in our culture. Oh, and we may also have destroyed the planet for our descendants. Sorry, everyone. What would it even mean to repent for all that? It'll probably take as long as the harm took. And that's not just left-wing whinging. That's a reflection that Jesus Christ rules the cosmos and will right every wrong one day. We can't fix history by ourselves. We can't even fix ourselves by ourselves. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Christ the King Sunday says He will one day, soon. Well, with names like Christ the King or Sunday of Doom, you might think this Sunday is quite ancient. It's not. It's quite new. It sounds positively medieval. It's actually positively 20th century. In that century of totalitarianisms from the right with the Nazis and the fascists and from the left with the Maoists and the Soviets, the church thought it would be a good idea to have one day where we say, Jesus Christ alone rules. Anyone else who claims absolute authority is an imposter. The one ruler of the universe is not named Lenin or Hitler or Mao or Pol Pot. It is Jesus Christ alone. And before him, every knee will bow. It was actually a Catholic pope who thought of this feast in 1925, and the rest of us joined him. On the year's crowning day, there's only one crown on one head, and it's a crown of thorns. This king commands us to love enemies, melts our divisions in baptism, never takes revenge, but only offers mercy. He suffers punishment and does not inflict it. What is doomed on the Sunday of doom is doom itself. <laughs> Jesus Christ annihilates it and leaves us only with hope. Now, one reason we mark the calendar this way is because we Christians have often been toothless in the face of despotic regimes. Pious people who think only about what souls go to heaven often have nothing to say when demonic powers come up in their governments. So Christians rush to arms to support Hitler and Nazi Germany, or apartheid South Africa, or my own Jim Crow U.S. South. Christ the King says those are desecrations. Our faith is not private, it is entirely public. So in South Africa, some other Christian leaders, like Desmond Tutu, 
didn't stop when someone accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. They said, oh good, Jesus has all these weird friends too. And they come right into your heart as well. Let's stand up for them. Lots of people at the time called Desmond Tutu a communist. We now call him a saint. In the mid-20th century, there was a Swiss pastor named Karl Barth who, when World War I started, looked in the paper and was horrified to see all his professors at the finest universities in Germany supporting Germany's aggressive war effort. He had idolized his professors, and they were all wrong, every one of them. Later, when Hitler came to power, Bart knew what to do. He knew how to say there is only one ruler in life and death, and he's a Jewish rabbi. When the church has said Jesus is Lord, most clearly, we have been ready to stand up when other lords come along, claiming ultimate power. When we have muted or muffled our claim that Jesus is Lord, we've gone along with any old Lord that comes along. We've just had an election in this city. We also had one in my home country that drew a little more international media attention. When we vote, we're making decisions about how to govern ourselves, what to spend money on, what we want our people to look like. Here's what Christ the King says, every power falls short. There are only sinners to run for these offices, and there are only sinners to vote for these offices. If you look in the Bible for a positive example of the use of power, you'll look a long time. All the kings in the history of Israel are tied for worst, and the New Testament sees no better leader than that. Now, Pontius Pilate is one of only three human beings who shows up in the Apostles' Creed. Three. There's Jesus Christ, his mother Mary, and a petty Roman despot who puts Jesus to death. So every time we say the Apostles' Creed, we're remembering by name a ruler who got everything wrong, as if to remind us that most of them do, most of the time. Sometimes after elections, we feel like our side is won and we feel great. Christ the King Sunday says, nah, they all disappoint. <laughs> Sometimes after elections, we feel like the sky is falling and Americans talk about moving to Canada again. I want to tell them it's kind of hard. You can't just drive up here and live here, right? After terrible elections, Christ the King says, it's okay. Christ is still King and will judge every miserable use of power one day. So Christ rules even when we choose poorly in democracies or when despots claim false power. Every rule, no matter how benevolent, falls short. And every rule, no matter how cruel, is temporary. The only ruler who doesn't fail is Jesus. Politicians should look at us Christians and say, how come those folks are never happy with me? We should not be a reliable power base for any of them because we have a different ruler. There was a preacher here for a quarter of a century named Andrew Lawson. That was before the preacher you most recently had for a quarter of a century named Andrew Starling. If my name was Andrew, I would have to say for 25 years, apparently. I would be 78 years old by then. Andrew Lawson preached a sermon in this space 
at the height of United Church confidence in around 1960. This denomination at the time felt like we ran Canada. For people to get elected to office, we had to at least approve of them. And we thought our future was only going to be more and more glorious. Since then, our denomination has nearly disintegrated in power and numbers. Here's what Lawson said before that happened. It's in your bulletin on page 9 because it's a long quote. Has anybody ever thought of us as troublemakers? Do people look at us as Christians and ever think we are people who might turn the world upside down? Does anybody ever consider you as a Christian a troublemaker? Does anybody ever think you, as a Christian, are a disturber of the peace? Christians have always been people who seem to have an uncanny knack of getting themselves into trouble. They always seem to be in hot water. That which will really make the church really relevant in our day is its ability to stir up trouble. That which will make the church irrelevant in our day is when it stops stirring up trouble. For whenever there is an evil, the church must fight it. Whenever there is an injustice, as Christians, we must do everything we can to eradicate it. Whenever you see a group of Christians gathering together, you ought to be able to put up the storm signals indicating there is rough weather ahead. Now, what trouble would you get into in this building in 1960? I mean, did the authorities have us on watch? <laughs> but Andy Lawson is reading his Bible well. When you serve another king, you're always in conflict with the other powers. Here's why. Jesus Christ stands before a petty ruler who has the power to crucify him or to set him free. The Romans were in the Middle East for the same reason empires are in the Middle East today, for resources. In Rome, it was North African food. North Africa was the breadbasket of Roman power. In our day, of course, it's petroleum. Pilate's job is to keep resources flowing without a hitch, and he can be as bloodthirsty as he wants. Normally, when Pilate was unsure what to do, he just executed everybody and never asked questions. I get nervous standing before a customs officer who's looking at my Nexus card. Jesus is standing before a governor who can crucify him or set him free. That's a lot of power in one man's hands. But I don't mean Pilate's. Frederick Buechner imagines Pontius Pilate as a bored bureaucrat, a two-pack-a-day smoker who knows his job requires a quick trigger. Pilate gazes up through the smoke and asks Jesus a question more cynical than any first-year philosophy student. What is truth? <laughs> he has no idea all the truth there's ever been is standing right in front of him in the person of one Jew. Pilate thinks he holds Jesus' life in his hands. Actually, Jesus holds all life in his, including Pilate's. This story shows us two kinds of power. One, the power to destroy, Pilate's power. The other, the power to give life and to heal, Jesus' power. His is the power that creates the world and is making all things new right now. Pilate looks powerful in all his terrible splendor. He's not. Jesus looks weak 
with his hands bound, about to be tortured to death. He's not. He is all the power there could ever be, fleshed in one accused insurrectionist, about to be torn apart. Here's some modern examples of Jesus' sort of power. Franz Jägerstatter was an Austrian farmer. When the Nazis came to power in his home country, everybody cheered, except him. He said, you know, when I worship on Sundays and I talk about Jesus being Lord, it doesn't seem to me that I should talk about someone else being Fuhrer. His priest and his bishop begged him to go along. He refused. He wouldn't salute. And so he was imprisoned, convicted of treason, and executed. One of the last things we know he said was, Jesus is my Fuhrer. The Catholic Church recently named Jägerstadter a saint, not his priest, not his bishop, but the farmer who refused to go along. The great filmmaker Terrence Malick made a beautiful movie called A Hidden Life about these events. Because anytime someone recognizes the true king and refuses false ones, it's beautiful. Another example. When the Nazis crushed Poland at the start of the Second World War, occupied Poles had a choice. They could actively resist and be killed. They could more hiddenly, clandestinely resist and maybe help the Allies. Few did those things. But one student group did something wise. They started an underground and illegal theater group to keep Polish language and culture alive. Now, theater doesn't look revolutionary. It can actually save lives and heal cultures. The man who started that group was Karl Wojtyla, who became Pope John Paul II. There are multiple ways to resist evil. Now, celebrating stories like that is too easy. Indiana Jones at one point says, Nazis, I hate these guys. It's a little too easy to condemn the Nazis. Who's going to stand up for them, right? But one courageous Brit stood up to his country in the middle of World War II. Bishop Bell stood in the House of Lords and said, Remember when the Blitz was destroying our cities? You know, it's just as immoral when we bomb German civilian centers, right? That's murder too. That was not a popular thing to say in 1945. But it was a Christ the King sort of thing to say. Lots of military examples today, forgive me, because Jesus disqualifies our ways of calculating life and violence. My kingdom is not of this world, he says. If it were, my followers would fight. N.T. Wright is the greatest biblical scholar alive today, and he says this, if Jesus' kingdom is not from this world... It is for this world. It's not otherworldly. It's another way of being worldly, a way marked by Jesus' reign. Christ is the king of this world now. It's just most of us can't see it. Sometimes we do. For example, the Church of Sudan suffered in that country's civil war, millions dead, most of the world didn't notice. 
And when it started to emerge as a newly independent South Sudan, they were in partnership with the university I used to work at, Duke. And the folks at Duke said, how can we help? And they said, well, we need public health, we need agriculture, and we need Bible translators. The Duke people said, the first two make sense. Help us understand the third. And the Sudanese said, well, we're used to hearing the Bible in the language of our colonizers, English and Arabic. We want to hear that God loves us in the language our mom taught us when she nursed us. And so they filled the plane with public health people and ag people and Bible nerds. Got to listen when those out of power and crushed say what they want. A friend of mine asked about leadership there, said, everyone in South Sudan suffered. Most people want to respond with hatred. As a Christian, I'm trying to show mercy is stronger than vengeance. That's how you build a culture. That's how you bring life. And somewhere, Christ's crown gleamed just a little. I mentioned Frederick Buechner before. I'm not sure why great writers emerge at terrible times of history, but that seems to happen. Buechner was exploring Christian faith, wandered into a church in New York City almost as beautiful as ours. It was around the time Queen Elizabeth was crowned And he said this. This is also on page nine of your bulletin, a long quote. The coronation of Jesus took place among confession and tears, and then, as God was and is my witness, great laughter. Jesus is crowned amidst great laughter. And at that phrase, great laughter, for reasons I have never satisfactorily understood, the Great Wall of China crumbled. And Atlantis rose up out of the sea, and on Madison Avenue at 73rd Street, tears leaped from my eyes as though I'd been struck across the face. Wouldn't you love to write a sentence that beautiful just one time in your life? (laughs) I sure would. Christ is crowned with great laughter, and the delight of that phrase made Christ king in Beekner's life. Now be careful, plenty of people are willing to talk about Christ as king of their hearts, but say nothing about murderous political regimes in their capitals. But if more of us recognize the way Christ reigns, we'll say no when our rulers step away from their way. The more we watch our monarch rule, the less comfortable we'll be when governments scapegoat people or launch wars of choice or steal from the poor to give to the rich. More of Jesus' rule is our best hope against demonic rule. One of the most astonishing political events in my lifetime was the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of Eastern European communism. No one saw this coming about peacefully until it happened. And one reason was a prayer meeting at a grungy, nondescript church in Leipzig, East Germany, former GDR, a group started meeting on Mondays to pray for peace and talk about nonviolence, mostly old women. They'd read the Bible, they'd light candles, and they'd talk. So that started in 1980 with a few hardy folks. By the end of the 80s, that group had grown to a few hundred. By the summer of 1989, 4,000 were gathering. By October 1989, it was 6,000 inside the church and 35,000 outside. Sorry, 65,000. Had my number wrong. 
This church's example encouraged other protests across East Germany, and a little unimportant prayer meeting helped overthrow a totalitarian power. One leader said the authorities were ready for violence. You know what they weren't ready for? Candles and prayers. Tanks and bombs look really powerful. They're not. Candles, prayers, look really weak. They're not. They're the only kind of legitimate power there is. And candles and prayers are what we have this morning. I mean, they're pretty, but they don't look powerful, right? But the light of Christ overthrows every tyranny and signals a new dawn is coming. I hope you notice something else. In most of these examples, most Christians ran in the wrong direction, supported tyrannical governments. I can name you a few who didn't because there weren't very many. And who can blame them? Pilate looks really, really strong. Jesus looks really, really weak. Looks can deceive. That's what today says. Jesus is all the power there is. Pilate's power is passing away. That's why it thrashes about so violently. Hail King Jesus, come soon and make your reign complete. Amen.